You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, who is uh, a, a former... Air Force combat controller who, yes, uh, we are returning to Black Hawk Down, the story in Somalia and the Battle of Mogadishu. So we'll get to that coming up in just a moment. I know it's one of your guys' favorite stories. But before we get to our guest, our normal reminders, please don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You do all your normal shopping. Spend whatever you like, buy whatever you like. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, then we'll take that money. We'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show, like one you'll hear featured today with our guest. Uh, as well, it works from your smartphone. It's really easy. So if you have all your credit card information saved, it's user-friendly on your smartphone. Just go to hazardground.com first, switches you to the Amazon app, and you're locked and loaded and ready to go. Please continue to leave us Apple reviews. Give us five-star ratings. Anywhere you see you get this podcast, leave us a, a great review and We'll get it. We'll post it on social media for it. We certainly appreciate all the love, but that certainly helps grow the audience and uh, and the Hazard Ground community. So, again, more five-star ratings, more reviews. We certainly thank you very much for doing so. Speaking of social media, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Don't forget as well, if you have any guest suggestions, go to our website, hazardground.com, and uh, let us know there. We've been getting a ton of them coming in late, which I love. I love when you guys step up and want to tell stories or have great ideas about stories that we should tell. So, Please keep them coming. All right, this this week's guest uh, is a 30-year member of the United States Air Force, retired lieutenant colonel, spent most of his career in special operations, primarily as a combat controller and a special tactics officer. Uh, He was part of Operation Gothic Servant and Black Hawk Down. Beyond that, uh, he went on to serve multiple different assignments throughout his career, uh, including his final military assignment was the Joint Special Operations Command Weapons of Mass Destruction, U.S. Interagency and Intelligence Community Director. That is one hell of a title. He also has the distinction of being the Guinness Book of World Record holder for most base jumps in 24 hours of 201, a feat he conducted to benefit children who lost to parents to the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. Uh, he is living a renaissance existence in his post-military life. He's authored several books, including Alone at Dawn, a New York Times bestseller, and Amazon number one international bestseller. Uh, and he's uh, enjoying the finer things in life out in Utah. He is Dan Schilling joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Dan, welcome. So great to be with you, and thank you for joining me. Mark, thanks for having me. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the things I know we'll end up exploring. And uh, I hope we can go off into some other tangents that people find value in. That's one of the things I really enjoy about this stage of, of my career. No, and, and look, I, I'll say this for the audience who may be somewhat new. We are over a dozen now members of Operation Gothic Serpent and Black Hawk Down. And uh, uh, if you go back to our very first episode, Matt Eversman um, was it was our first guest on the show. And anybody who's seen the movie Black Hawk Down sort of knows it was uh, from Matt's point of view, or at least told from Matt's point of view. But Mark Bowden also, who wrote the book, was a was a guest on the show as well. Okay. We've had everybody, you know, and, and I got to tell you, I mean, we're coming up on the 30 year anniversary of this, right? It was October 3rd, 1993, uh, when all this went down. And it's interesting because 30 years later, this battle still has so much connection to our generation. I mean, in reality, there's some, some idea that this was maybe one of the first battles of the war on terror. 
um, the way it was at least perceived from the enemy's point of view, it was. Um, and, and, you know, the movie, I think, was was it was a key part in that just because, you know, we talk about people's sort of adoration for what had gone on in Somalia. In the pre 9-11 world, you know, there wasn't really a war movie, maybe other than Platoon, I think. And I don't even remember seeing Platoon as a kid. Yeah, they connected with. But if they connected with it because it was a movie about a war from their generation. Right. Like Saving Private Ryan was great. But, you know, I can't none of us can connect with it because we didn't live in that time. We lived through Black Hawk Down. We saw it on CNN. We were we we all can remember, or many of us can remember, you know, where we were and hearing about it, and then watching the movie unfold. It connected us to it in a certain way, and then all of a sudden, in the post nine eleven world, we see this huge influx of war movies. Right, like the, the post nine eleven war movies have become the John Wayne westerns of our parents' generation. Right, there's just millions yeah. of them out there. So uh, I say all that to say that you know Black Hawk Down holds a special place. Uh, in not only military members' mindsets, but just this generation, as far as one of the more notable battles that we just uh, will we'll never forget. Yeah, I think I think you've touched on a key component of that. Two things: if had they not happened in sequence, you and I would not be having this dialogue today. First, Mark wrote this book and resurrected what was, in a lot of ways, an obscure operation and deployment, even though it was a it was a really significant gun battle because a lot of things came out of that from a tactic standpoint and even development of equipment. The multicam uniform came out of that gunfight. You know, the blood clotting bandage really took a leap forward based on that gunfight. But Mark wrote that book, which put it in the public's eye. And then Jerry Bruckheimer and Ridley Scott made this. It's a good movie from a movie standpoint. And that movie takes a story like this and distributes it to the public in a way that even a book cannot do. I've really learned to appreciate the value of Hollywood. Ironic as that may sound from, as a guy from, from black special ops, you know, so much of what we do, we try and mask, but Hollywood has a way of reaching people and there's, and that vehicle can have great value. And uh, you know, the movie, you know, the plot, and I know you've covered this a million times with a bunch of other guys who've been in that battle, but you know, it's like 65% accurate from a from a sure. historical standpoint. But it's not a bad movie for two reasons. And I, I remember I had this conversation with Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer. I said, you know, it, it didn't make us out to be these automatons who just go out and kill and do whatever, which is one of the tropes that happens with Hollywood. Or conversely, all of us are so traumatized by our experience in combat that it destroyed us entirely. And that's the horrificness of war. Neither of which are true in, in, in any real battle and people who've been uh, deployed to combat and have seen combat will tell you it has facets of that, but that's not really what it does to you. And I, I think they threaded that the eye of that needle pretty well. But I think the, the bigger point you made here is that movie stands at a time when there weren't a lot of other comparable type right. stories to be shown on the big screen. And um for whatever reason, you know, all of us who have been in that gunfight, there's for better or for worse, there's a halo effect that goes around having participated in that uh, in that deployment. Because it wasn't just that one gunfight. You know, we did seven right. raids. We did a bunch of other stuff. I did foot patrols around Mogadishu and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But therein, I think, also lies another trap for people who are part of that. And I've seen this in other interviews with guys. Uh, I watched an interview with... Um, uh, 
uh, Brad Thomas, and I don't really know him, but you know he's a Delta guy. He's been on the show twice. Okay, he, I, I think he's a really remarkable individual. When I, I saw an interview with him, and he talked about how he didn't want to be defined by that gunfight. You know, my world record, my Guinness World Record, you know, sort of as an extreme athlete on base jumping, which is a was a big passion of mine for many years. Base jumping was really an initial attempt. I look at it now in retrospection to try and break out of, I didn't want to be Black Hawk Down Dan my whole life. And this right. was a way of making another statement that the public could grasp and go, okay, maybe there's another facet of this guy. And maybe even becoming a writer is, is that too. I don't know, but because uh, I, I have a lot of other goals and aspirations for my writing than just to distance myself from something that was a significant part of my life, but it's not defining. Couple of things here that I'll I'll add. Uh, one, Brad Thomas and his band Silence and Light actually wrote the music for the intro and the out cue for this show. So uh, <laughs> that's cool. He's been a great partner and a great friend um, to the Hazard Ground, to say the least. Uh, since you talked about the movie, I'll stay in it. Just a couple more quick thoughts. Um, one, you know, you certainly understand it's hard to encapsulate a twenty-four, twenty-eight, thirty-hour battle into ninety minutes to two hours on a screen. You have to take some liberties. Um, of course. And, I certainly understand that. However, here's what I will say. And when the movie came out, I made sure I said, this is one I have to read the book first. And I remember reading the book and I remember, you know, Mark Bowden doing just an incredible job. I was actually crying reading the book when, when Jamie Smith passed away, um, you know, uh, uh, with, with Matt and and everybody stuck in that, that little corner area in in the Bacar market and everything. Uh, It was just so well done. Um, And, you know, I remember reading about the battle scenes and everything and everything else and sort of imagining in my head. Now I hadn't been deployed to this point um, when I read the book and then I watched the movie. Uh, And then I went back again and I even watched the history channel documentary, which I think is excellently done. And there's, there's, we have to talk about that briefly because you say something in there that is so prophetic and poignant um, that I I don't know if you even know what I'm talking about. We'll get to that, but I'm I'm not sure when, when, when we get, after I get back from deployment and I watch Black Hawk Down, what I think they hit the right notes with, and to me, this is the most important of any combat movie. If you can recreate the battle scenes to the point where my heart will start racing, my hand will start shaking a little bit, and those that that little adrenaline rush that goes through when you're when when you're in combat comes back to you, I think that's to me brings the most realism. And I always people always ask me what more war movies are the most real, and I say the combat scenes in Black Hawk Down are about as real as you can get on camera. I, I agree a hundred percent. I, you know, and I don't watch war movies anymore. For me, the standard before that time was always apocalypse now, yeah. which is an operatic movie. It's, yeah. and it's a, it's a really powerfully told, you know, retelling of heart of darkness. But, but for us in that movie, I, I agree. I think the graphic reality is it, 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 it really approximates as best as you can on a two dimensional screen that feeling of what happens aside from some pyrotechnic um, liberty of explosions, you know, (laughs) stuff's not designed to make fireballs, but everything else, man, a rocket propelled grenade, uh, man, looks like that. And, um, and, and guys bleeding out as much as I hate to say it graphically, it really looks like that. And um, that was, it was an amazing amount of cinematography and, that's the value of a, a of a remarkable director like Ridley Scott and his director yeah. of photography. Their ability to do that is is profound, and uh, yeah, it's one of those things that comes out of that movie. And I, 
and maybe that's one of the reasons it, it still stands the test of time. Now that movie's over 20 years old itself. Yeah. The battle's yeah. 30 years old. The movie's 20 years old. Um, so uh, we'll get back to the movie. I'm sure it'll come up again at some point in time. But I, I do like to start back at the beginning for you about why and how you got in the Air Force. Uh, what, were, what were you thinking back then as a, as a young lad? Well, I, I got into the military. I think this isn't an uncommon story, but the girl I owe a great debt to, I was dating at the time, reached into my chest, grabbed my heart and went and wrenched it out. And I was looking for something to do. And it had never occurred to me to join the military, despite the fact that my dad was in the Second World War. My mom was a nurse during the, the war. All my uncles were in the war. In fact, one landed on D-Day and got shot on the beach. Wow. Um, and uh, and so I, I found my way into the Army because an Army recruiter told me, we will pay you to jump out of airplanes. And it had never occurred to me to jump out of an airplane, which is surprising because I'm kind of a, an adrenaline-fueled gat. And... Um, I joined the army as a grunt and I really loved it. Humping a 60 in a ruck. I, I found a meritocracy that was an outlet for a lot of energy. I had a lot of energy. Couldn't go to college. I didn't have a discipline mentally to do that kind of, of thing. I didn't see the payoff for that type of effort at that time in my life. Anyway, so while I'm in the army, I ended up, I was in a Pathfinder platoon. I ended up going TDY with some combat controllers and I'll never forget the conversation I have with these guys. This is back in the mid eighties, like NVGs were a big thing. Okay. So like they had, we were doing blackout landings with MC-130 Talons and all this stuff I'd never seen. And this guy, Pete Neal told me, well, you know, we were Halo, we're Scuba. I'm like, what? The Air Force? You're bullshitting me. And then he said, we also get pro pay. And I said, well, what is pro pay? And his response was, that's cool guy pay. And I went, I'm in, I want cool guy pay and I want to be Halo and Scuba. So I, I did this drug deal. I ended up getting out of the army in the middle of my contract and service transferring into the air force using some, I don't know, smooth language or something. And uh, man, I just found another home. I, I found the appeal of combat control to be a very lasting um, experience for me. I was very glad I made that transition. So and that's how I ended up, you know, on a very long path. Like a lot of people, I didn't see myself doing 31 years. But uh, man, that's what happens when you find yourself surrounded by remarkable individuals who do things that the vast majority of humans cannot do. That's a really, that's a great landing pad for, for people like me. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, uh, it's so funny because I look back on when you say that, I look back on my military career and... I signed up in a pre 9-11 world like, you know, I mean, it was obviously right. post Somalia, but, you know, I was commissioned in 99 and I just I never was connected to that world in the military. I didn't know that there was this whole other clandestine cloak and dagger, you know, part of the military that was out there. And I can remember driving around Fort Hood and vaguely remember seeing signs. Hey, special forces, you know, sign up kind of deal. And I'm like, right. what the hell is that? You know, like. I feel like I'm special enough already. I was kind of. But, but it's interesting, though. I, I think the other I think the great reveal that happens to all of us, I, I'd say almost really without exception, is you may think you know what it is you're getting into. Special <laughs> forces, SEALs, combat control, Rangers. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, GSG-9, if you're in Germany or the SAS, if you're in Aussie, you don't really know what it is you're getting into. You don't know. It's impossible. I, and it's just like combat and it's just like sex. If you've never had those experiences in your life, 
you think because you've seen him on the screen, things are sensationalized. <laughs> Sex and combat are sensationalized on the screen. Yeah. And they're if you've never had those too. experiences, you don't really know what they're like. And then you have that experience. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, and that applies to all of those topics. But you don't really know what you're getting into until after you're in it. And that's where it's a great leap of faith. And, of course, it takes a great commitment to get into any of those communities. Um, having spent time, and I was later on, I was in Army SF for another half a dozen years, and I went back to the Air Force because I, I tend, my whole career path sort of does this. I don't, I never really had a chart that went up on an angle. And, uh, you know, you realize that so much of what you'll go through, it's the same for everybody. And um, while each community is unique, both in its capability and maybe focus, the common ground is much more prevalent than the differences, I think. Sure. Um, and again, I was fortunate enough, and, and people who are fans of the show know, I deployed with, with the SF my first deployment from 05 to 06. I was attached to those guys, and it was by far and away the greatest experience of my almost 24 years in the military. I mean, it's it just nothing compared to it. That was – I met my emotional and, and physical match there, right? Like, they yeah. understood me, and I got them. There, there was a whole – level of autonomy and certainly a whole level of um, never being babysat and being treated like an adult. And, and, you know, I did the greatest amount of growth in that environment because it is an environment where it allows you to grow if you have the right mindset, right? If you have, if you have the right capacity to think outside the box, to be a, a, you know, to take the initiative, to be a go-getter, to solve problems, to work as a team, all the things that we, that we are told, at least that I was told, right? Like these are the things that were beaten to our head in ROTC about being a lieutenant, you know, and then you get on active duty and all they want to do is babysit the hell out of you and do, and, and then, you know, everybody chokes the life out of you. And, and it's the exact opposite of that, right? Don't think for yourself. Don't you do anything without talking to me first. And, you know, and so then I get in this environment where I, I, I struggled as a lieutenant because I was in that, that active duty environment. But when I got to the SF community, I, I could really blossom because it, it, it asked you to. It forced and you to. Ironically, ironically, in those special ops communities is this healthy disdain for authority <laughs> that exists within a rigid hierarchy, right? But within it is this ability to thumb your nose at the very leadership in a, in, in a, in a significant way. And I think that's what allows a, a certain type of, of mentality or personality to still thrive, you know, because people, people who know me well are always stunned that I did 31 years because I'm like, I'm like the least military cat in the military. Like, I, I don't put my rank on books. I don't really, even as a squadron commander, like, I got in trouble on a regular basis because I, I, while well, I value and respect rank and, uh, and positions, Man, that was, it's not the way I functioned. And, um, you know, you, you have this ability to sort of keep this personality uh, and, your, and your idiosyncrasies in place despite being in this military structure. And yeah. you can go off and just think stuff up and do it. Man, I, made, I got to create two squadrons that didn't exist and be the first commander of both of those organizations. Like, you can't do that in the regular military. They don't just go, hey, Lieutenant Schilling, because I was a lieutenant at the time, we think that's a great idea. Why don't you go do that? Nobody says that to you. You sort of have to figure out how to get past the bureaucracy and past the rigidity of the military to do these things that have 
I would argue, disproportionate value. And that is the value of special ops in the first place is its disproportionate impact on events, not just battles like people think of, but you know, the coolest things I ever did in special ops were clandestine type things. And there's no guns involved in that kind of work. You go someplace, you don't take a gun if you're going to go to a country and try and influence somebody through unconventional means. There's no guns involved. It may still be high risk, and there are other, and there are, and there are large consequences. But in fact, it's not what people think of as jumping out of an airplane with a backpack full of stuff and you know getting into a gunfight. Not that we haven't done that. Right, right. And uh, I, I could say with a fair amount of certainty, my as you coined it, you know, disdain for authority uh, is the reason I uh, will retire as an 06 instead of an 07. So, uh, you know, it, it's, they, they don't take well right. at, at, at our level to um, being told that they're wrong all that often. And I was always the dissenting voice in the room. Now I'll put my head on my pillow at night, knowing that I had impeccable integrity and, and I always said what I felt and what I believed was a thousand percent right in the best interest of, the military of my unit of my soldiers and everything else. And that's enough for me, you know, like yeah. I, I can be comfortable with that. And I think it's funny because had I stayed on one career path, I would definitely have been an 07 or an 08. If I'd yeah. stayed in the, in the air guard before going back to active duty and back to JSOC, which is a, was a career killer in the sense that rank was, was no longer a factor, but man, I don't, I didn't really care about, that I really enjoyed, it, and this is why I, I do the things I do now, things that I felt had real value or really challenged me or were interesting. And those do not lead up, let's face it, what is a corporate structure. You know, it, being an 07 is like being a senior vice president in a corporation. There's zero difference. There's an architecture. How you get promoted requires certain things, and you do this step to that step to that step. You have to get lucky. You have to be good. You have to work hard. The fact is, it's a corporate structure, and uh, you know I'm I'm not very switched on by corporate structures. <laughs> yeah, so. not a nine to five guy either. All right, so when you when you enlist in the army and then you get to the airport, what, what time frame? What year are we when this all begins? Eighty five, and then 85. I was in the Air Force by eighty seven, and into combat control. Then, now, what about combat control surprised you, if anything? Like, I mean, was there anything you weren't ready for? I mean, you said, "Hey, I'm in. I, this is what I like, and this is what I want to do," but did, was anything physically that caught you off guard mentally to explain well, the experience? You have to be a strong swimmer. Our, our training pipeline is longer than anybody else's. It's more expensive. And I would argue it is intellectually more demanding than any other special operations training pipeline, hard as they all are. And that's not to take anything away from those people, but the, the burden as a lone individual combat controller on the battlefield is so disproportionate than if I'm a SEAL in a platoon or I'm an ODA member you know, you're a member of that team and the teams were there together. As the Air Force Combat Controller, I'm plugged into somebody else's structure, their culture, which is a huge, huge thing you have to adapt to. A SEAL platoon culture is significantly different from an ODA culture, which yeah. is significantly different from a Ranger culture, which is significantly different from an SAS culture, the Aussies. So I have to blend into everybody else's culture and you have to perform at their level, but you don't want to be the top guy because then you put a bullseye on your back for being trying to replace the alpha of the group and you can't be at the bottom where it's like, Hey, the fucking air force guy is a wussy and you can't do anything. <laughs> so you have to exist. You have to be competent, but you have to also blend. But here's where things really get spicy for that guy. And the burden is so heavy for our dudes. 
we go out and I'm going to kill somebody, Uday and Kisei Hussein, two guys who deserve to die. Everyone's like, oh, Delta Force killed those guys with airstrikes. No, they did not. A guy named Mikey B killed those guys with airstrikes, and he was their combat controller. But here's the dilemma for that guy. He puts two bombs, small diameter bombs through there, kills both those guys. They deserve to die horrible deaths. Everybody's happy. Delta Force comes out and goes, we killed those guys. Yay, team. If he had missed those bombs, if he had fratricide somebody by a mistake under the high pressure of doing that in an urban environment with a plane that's going 500 plus knots dropping these bombs, you know who's responsible? That guy. Immediately, that whole team points at him and goes, the Air Force guy screwed up and killed the friendlies. They don't say, we, we screwed up, the Air Force guy. But if we win, they say, we all won. And the Air Force guy gets lost in the wash. And that's the, that's, that's the burden of being a combat controller, because you hold more ultimate power in the battle space, the three and four dimensional battle space around you, than anybody else that you're on the battlefield with. So... That's a pretty heavy burden for our guys. Yeah. And, uh, you know, most people don't realize that about combat controllers. Yeah, you can jump and dive and all the cool guy stuff that, that a lot of us get turned on by that's, that's fun and it's exciting and it's challenging. But the fact is, man, when you're out there rolling with these other people, you carry that burden. Now, here's the other upside that the other forces do not get. If I'm an ODA member and I am in my ODA, and even if I change groups, I go from first group to 10th group and I'm, Europe and, you know, where I go to seventh group, I'm in somewhere else, wherever. South America. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in the Middle East, whatever, wherever it is you go, you're in your team as a combat controller, man. I worked with people all over the world. And from those experiences, not only do I get exposed to culture and it develops me as an individual because I really learn how to adapt and socially orient very quickly, you get the best practices from everybody else. Nobody else gets that to the extent that our guys do. And it's, it's one of the great things about being a combat controller. And, and perhaps it's, it's one of the things that allows me to do the things I do now. I get to write, write music. Like you were talking about Brad Thomas and his band. You know, I, I released my first single last fall. We, we did a awesome. band and spent two years on this song. I'm not a musician. But, but the ability to do that and plug in with musicians, uh, studio musicians that we hired down in L.A., some great people. Alanis Morissette's keyboardist and all these other people I, I really enjoyed spending time with. Man, that that came about from my other communities where I got to, you know, do things and writing books and, you know, flying around the world, talking to people about resilience. That all comes from these other experiences I had. And so I don't know. It's 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 I think one of the common traits of all the successful combat controllers I've known that have gone on to do things and, 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 and found companies and, and do things that people wouldn't expect is this trait that they're all very intellectually curious people. And I think that comes by virtue of the type of training that we go through and then the experiences you have throughout your career. Yeah, you put in those terms, uh, and I'm always so, you know, uh, I'm in awe of the amount of combat power we can put together in one space between combat controllers, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, Delta, and everything else. you know, it's a, it's, unless you've been in that environment and seen it up close. Again, I don't know that any average Joe would, would, would understand it, but, you know, uh, to put all that together, it has to feel like you guys can almost never fail, 
right? Like, does it, do, do you get that sense that like there's too much good around me, too many talented people, too, way too many well-trained, smart guys for us to ever fail? Yeah, but, but, the, but the problem is when you're in those really dire situations, and Black Hawk Down is an example, so it's an easy one for us as a touchstone to come back to in our conversation today. You're, when things really go sideways, you know, I mean, Will Markham, who's a really good friend of mine, he's a retired combat controller, chief master sergeant. You should have, you should have Will on your show. He was on the show. Oh, shit. Okay. Well, so, you know, as a guy who called the first airstrikes in response to America's reaction to 9-11, his first 26 days of combat, he killed more enemy on the battlefield than any SEAL or Green Beret in the history of either of those communities. It's not to take anything away from those people. Again, it's like he killed so many people in his first 26 days of combat. It, it's a staggering number, but based on the teamwork you're talking about, the guys flying the plane, the ODAs who's working with, the, the, the Afghans who were defending his life at the base of that tower when he was calling in airstrikes within danger close, that's where it's like it can go sideways very, very quickly. B-52s from 40,000 feet, man. But, you know, it's... It's amazing. That was just his first trip to combat, and he was so effective on the battlefield. And that's the modern advancement of lethality, is the integration of air power or, in the future, space power with the individual man or woman on the ground. And Calvin represents, we all know Miss Calvin, he's the, but the best of what that can be, in my opinion. I stand and, you know, I'm very fortunate to have the whatever reputation that I have, but I stand in the shadow of guys like Will Markham, in my opinion. Um, so you sign up in the mid eighties. Uh, I want to fast forward a little bit. So the Gulf war kicks off. You're already in the special operations community at that point in time, correct? Yeah. I was in JSOC. Then. So, I mean, did you guys think, I mean, it ended up being a very conventional war, but did you guys think immediately you were going to be part of that? No, because uh, Norman Schwarzkopf didn't like, he had like many conventional force leaders, he had a healthy yeah. disdain for special ops. Yeah. But he went to the then JSOC commander, uh, Wayne Downing, it's like, hey, we're having a problem with the Iraqis lobbing these Scud missiles into Israel, and we got to keep Israel out of the war. And if they keep launching missiles into Israel, like Israel's going to wade in, and that's going to destroy the coalition. And the only people who could do this unconventional pursuit of where these missiles were being fired from in Western Iraq was an organization like JSOC. And at the time it was, you had 160th, you had the first special operations wing with the 53s, you had us and Delta Force and, and some Rangers. And you put that package together and you go out and, you know, and, and it, 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 was an, a, it was an amazing early adaptation of how you could effectively change the course of a war or prevent the course of a war or a campaign from going off the rails just with this force. Now you can never prove a negative. So because nothing bad happened, right. how do you really say what the value was? But that's what the value of special ops is, is it's, it can't even be measured conventionally. Uh, and you know, that was, yeah. So I was, I was there and then we came back from that and did a couple other things here and there that were probably still, classified and then we ended up in 93 going i was on alert with um b squadron at delta force at the time and uh that's when it spun up in somalia in fact um we even loaded the plane once to go this was like in april i think, I, I, I heard that from a, a bunch of other ranger guys and, and other yeah. rays that 
It was like, hey, get on a plane, hurry up, we got to go. And then, nope, we're not going yet. Uh, kind Sitting of on green ramp, engines running, and they yep. called it off. And, yeah. uh, you know, so by the time that it switched over on the alert rotations to C Squadron, which is the squadron that ultimately ended up going. And at that time, C Squadron was the only squadron that hadn't had any been in combat. Missed Grenada, missed Panama, didn't go to the first Gulf War. A and B squadrons had all gone. I'm not yeah. here to talk about Delta's history, but, like, that was their first job. So when they rotated over, I, I swapped out with another combat, couple combat controllers, Jeff Bray, who was a very good friend of mine and ended up with a Silver Star in Somalia. Um, they swapped out. So I wasn't even going to go to Somalia, which, by the way, was fine with me because I was <laughs> sick and tired of rehearsing for that bloody thing. And um, I, I some other, sure other guys told you we were out doing a readiness exercise in Texas. And yep. uh, this is back in the days of just beepers and no cell phones and um, I was in my rack and somebody came and shook me up and it's like, Hey, you got to get on a plane and go to Bragg. That's always a good sign by the way. Okay. So I get on a plane and I fly back and my boss was like, Hey, we're, this thing's definitely going. And I had been the, one of the original planners for the deployment um, when it first came up. So that's why they flew me back because I had been around it for six months. And uh, they, they said, go find a job. And I ended up going over to Delta and saying, all right, what do you guys need me to do? And that ended up me deploying. Let me ask you, Dan, because you have this experience in Iraq during the Gulf War, this clandestine deal that no one really knows about. That's your first, and I assume that's your first taste of combat, air quote, you know, like that's your first. Yeah, real- uh, okay. yeah, yeah. That, that's safe to say. What was, was there anything about this mission when you had heard about what was going and what you were going to do that seemed even remotely close to what you had to do during the first Gulf War? I mean, did no, it just- it's completely different things. One's desert mobility running around, you know, you're calling airstrikes on, on targets. And the other is we're going to go into a city and this is what Delta Force does really well. We're going to go in there, you know, and, and this is very early in Delta Force's uh, existence in, yeah. in a very real sense, I think, because this was really the first time that it's going to do something that um, was way outside the lanes. Like even what we did in Panama and, and, and that, you know, other stuff that had happened and, and some of these terrorist events, TWA-847 and the Achille Lauro cruise ship, and these things that happened in the 80s. We're not really super engagements from where you have to meet an enemy and they've got a vote in what happens on the battlefield. Yes. So, so I don't think anybody was truly ready for what we did. We had gotten a lot of the urban warfare lessons learned from Vietnam, you know, Tet and Way, you know, what you saw. And I've been to Way and I've talked to Vietnamese veterans of that war or that campaign from the other side. And it's really fascinating to talk to somebody that you, you know, you'd been in combat against, but nobody, I, I don't think had the real experience in order to walk into that thing confidently and say, this is exactly how things are going to go. But things, as you know, and your audience knows, once you get on the battlefield, nothing goes according to plan. You know, it's, that's not the Hollywood movie. Bad guys don't hold still when you shoot at them and you can't, you know, do all the things that Hollywood movie stars do. It's it's the old Mike Tyson edge, right? Yeah, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. Everybody's got a plan until the first bullet whizzes by your ear, and then all of a sudden everything uh, kind of goes out the window to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, and, and for those who don't know uh, or aren't familiar, you know, Black Hawk Down was was one battle, but you guys had been on ground. I think it was for up to eight months prior to that. You had been there from like what February, March time frame. Some, some, no, a, a few things. Well, not you been... specifically, but I mean, the, the entire engagement started in, in the early spring, right? Well, actually, the U.S. had deployed people in '92. So okay. there had been a presence there as part of the UNISOM, United Nations Operations right. in Somalia, 
uh, effort, which was really, to me, I always come back to this a lot because of my philosophical beliefs that I have now. You know, that was America at its best. We went to Somalia, not for oil, not to even combat terrorism, valid as that may be. It was to stave off starvation for people who were really struggling. That's America at its best. USAID, bags of rice um, from, from the American people. That's what it says on a bag of rice. This is our gift to you. And we had to wade into this because like a lot of places where things are unstable, Man, power throw flows from the barrel of a rifle. And so the different factions, the Habergetter clan and the other, that forget the other names of the other clans, there was four primary clans that are fighting for primacy. Man, they're using food as a weapon. And the U.S. stepped in to help stabilize that and, and protect people from starvation. That's America, man. That's what this country does, I would argue, better than any other nation. We've shed more blood, spent more money, and exerted more effort on behalf of others than any other nation in the history of civilization. We have warts, but we still do things that others don't do. So we go over there to do this, but our mission isn't to, to feed the people or stabilize the food supply. Our mission is to hunt down the guy who's disrupting everything, Muhammad Farah Idid. Nobody else can do that better than us either, and that's what JSOC does. It's not just, you know, it's not just Delta Force, man. It's everybody. It's 160th pilots, it's it's the 24th Special Tactics Squadron, it's all these other entities that bring their specialty and expertise to that type of environment that allow you to be successful. And we were successful. The politics ambushed us, but the but overall we were successful. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, two questions. One, um, had you to this point, had you in any of your previous operations ever seen this much wide variety of combat power? headed to one spot like when you mentioned to the list of all those units that were there before i know in certain spots they only call for two or three of them or three or four of them you had the whole lot here did that signal to you that anything was different no actually i, I would argue that there was an opposite effect there were political constraints i think it was less aspen was still the secretary of defense we right. wanted to bring gunships with us which by the way have a, a limited value in real urban gunfight because you cannot bring a gunship, AC-130 gunship, fired a bear 30 feet from your position, not 30 feet, but you can with a little bird gunship. But so we didn't, we didn't get the force package that uh, we were asking for, you know, Jerry Boykin and, and uh, General Downing, uh, Jerry Boykin was the Delta Force commander at the time, like they were asking for these resources, and they weren't getting them. We were limited to buy how many people we could put on X number of airplanes. That was the constraint, which is pretty stupid, but that's politics. And you can never get away from the politics as an operator or a commander in special ops. You're going to be hobbled by the politics that are driving where you're going to go do something like this. This isn't a war. This is something one off. I get it. I'll, I'll never understand, though, why you ask the best in warriors and the sharpest tip of the spear to do a job that is limited by being the sharpest tip of the spear. Like it just, then you don't call in those forces to do the job. The whole reason we have these units and the ability to do this is because when they do it, they do it with precision, speed, and effectiveness better than anybody else. And to right. take those away from them is just, it's ass backwards. It's moronic. Like, it, well, I, I would argue that it's politicians wanting to have their cake and eat it. And so, because to Bill Clinton, who was very driven by the public opinion polls, yep. 
So when the public opinion, which is very fickle, as we all know, shifts from this side of the equation to that side of the equation, that politician is going to pivot immediately. And that's exactly what they did. We better send these guys over there to stabilize things. They're killing UN soldiers, uh, Nigerians and, and Pakistanis. You know, this is what was happening. Send these special ops guys, but we don't want to send too violent of a message. So only they're asking for this. Okay, give them maybe percent of that and we'll call it good. To a politician, that's a compromise and that's their daily experience. I'm not justifying it, man, because I've lived it, but I understand why it happens. And in the understanding, just like any other situation in your life, you can apply this to a lot of things. Tension in your marriage, working with your boss. When you understand what the other elements of this human equation are, you can better appreciate what you're going to have to do or what your position really is. Then you'll know what, what you can and can't do. Or you're because we don't have the same rights as a civilian, what I'm going to have to do with this mission they've handed me, whether I want to do it or not. That's the big difference between us and everybody else. All right. Second question. When do you actually get on ground month in, in 93? August. Okay. So you're there for three months ahead of time. Um, leading up to October, and you know you had done a couple of other raids, a couple of other, you know, for lack of a better term, snatch and grab type deals, and you've gotten a couple of bad guys before. Mm-hmm. Um, did you get a sense that there was anything about Somalia that was anything that could overwhelm you guys that, that you couldn't have been prepared for? Yeah, sheer numbers. Listen, we had maybe 200 guys when you count the helicopter crews out there moving on targets and doing the things that we do. Mogadishu, you have to realize, is a city of a million people. And they had been in civil war for a couple of years, and they'd have been having clan fighting for much longer than that. So, uh, you know, Bere, who was the previous, who was deposed and the camp, country descended into anarchy, you know, those people, man, they knew how to fight. It was their terrain. You, it's we're the guys who are the interlopers. We've come in to do something which may or may not be in the best interest of some people that are there already. So, you know, you put 200 people in a city of a million folks and you start having those 200 guys who are always immediately identified because they look very different and their presence is going to be uh, announced in advance because they're going to be coming in by helicopter. You know what? You put those kind of people in a city of a million, bad things are going to happen because there's just that many people. And to the credit of the Somalis, from a tactical standpoint, they've been working hard on how to shoot down a helicopter because they didn't shoot down one helicopter on October 3rd. They shot down four. So two of them made it back to the airport. Two of them did not. And that's that was the right strategy for them because if they could bog us down on a point in that city, they can overwhelm us. I don't care how good a shooter you are at Delta or how good a ability I can be at calling in airstrikes. If there are masses of people, I'm going to run out of ammo and air power in a, now, in a, in a constrained environment like that. Over the course of the first couple of months of being there, going after Muhammad Farah Adid, who was the, the warlord that was sort of uh, at least had the, 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 the most iron of iron fist of all the clans there. Um, for those who, are, again, aren't familiar, uh, you guys had, had sort of been 
and this is at least what I've read and what I understand. There was there was a salivating to go get this guy and get this thing over with sooner rather than later. You had multiple opportunities before, or what you thought would be opportunities before to go get him that never really materialized. Whether it was just intelligence on the ground, actionable intelligence, things of that nature. Um, are, are you feeling like anything prior to October third? Like, okay, this is the one we're going to get him. You know, this is our opportunity, or maybe even we missed an opportunity to go get him. Well, what was different was we did this, we executed this during daylight. Right. The, the population's awake. People are doing things. Their ability to react and even converge, even from a clan and militia standpoint, is therefore improved on their side. Um, you know, and I remember uh, General Garrison, who I've got a, the utmost respect for, he actually came out as we were get, rolling up, you know, getting ready to lock and load and getting on rigs. I was getting on a Humvee. Everybody else was getting on helicopters and sort of wished everybody, well, he'd never done that before. And so, um, but we all knew that it's not like, Oh, he knows something we don't, man. You go out in the city in the middle of the day. And I had been on foot patrols in the city and I'd been out in the city a lot more than, than, than most anybody else, because I was always on the Ranger vehicle convoy and we did a lot of other things for the command. So I'd been out and about and, and done a lot of, things that exposed me to the city. And I had a, I, I felt a pretty good feel for things, but you know, for us, I, I didn't expect we were going to be successful because we were going to go out there, cordon off this building, Delta force was going to roll into this building, take out the, the, the dozen guys or so we were looking for that were lieutenants of the clan, roll them up and get the hell out of there as fast as we could. That's, you know, you talked about this before speed, violence of action, like, Audacity, that mission had all three of those components in spades. Now, what changed was, one, we were on the objective a lot longer. After 30 minutes on the objective, I was looking at my clock. I remember very clearly going, this is is taking way too long. And then, bam, they shot down Cliff Walcott's helicopter. And then everything changed. Before before you get too much, I just want to, because we're getting into it, I just wanted to get the audience the background of, what your specific job was heading into this? Well, I was a combat controller. So uh, we already had a combat controller on the Delta Assault Force. There was a combat controller, which is Jeff Bray. We had a Delta, uh, we had one with the Ranger blocking force. So fast dropping off the helicopter, the Rangers were supposed to cordon off the city yep. block or perimeter of whatever we were taking down that day. Uh, John McGarry was on that. And then I was with the Ranger commander and I was in the vehicle convoy. Okay. So that's the QRF. And it's also, it's also the evacuation uh, mechanism. We had some five ton trucks we were bringing with us in order to load everybody up on the objective and get out of there because it was so urban. There's no way to land helicopters and take out right. the Delta. Force so, and for those who aren't aware, so four helicopters come in each corner of a building, guys fast rope down to the ground. They get everybody in, a vehicle convoy rolls in, picks up all the bad guys, picks up the rest of the American soldiers, and everybody rolls out via vehicle out of the city. In theory, that was the 30-second version of of what the the, raid was. So the helicopter- That was the concept. That was the concept. And you were part of the ground convoy force that was there to to pick them up and move in. I just want- want Yeah, but even even that, man, going in, things things started to go sideways. The lead vehicle, uh, I was in the third vehicle at first, and it was- they got off course and the range commander's like, no, keep moving. So the vehicle convoy got, there was a little bit of disarray getting onto the objective. And then of course on the objective, you know, things in a gunfight like that, they, they take on a sense of the surreal sometimes. And, you know, um, Jeff Stroop told us when he was here 
Um, and I didn't know it's, it's crazy. I say this all the time. Every time I talk to somebody, I learn. I think I know everything about this battle from the outside. Every time I talk to somebody, I learned something new that I didn't know existed. Jeff had told us that, and, 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 you know, when Jeff heads back to base after Dominic Billa gets killed, the reason that the convoy got lost is because he was the only guy who knew the route. He was the only guy who knew where he was going. And the rest of the guys didn't know the city as well as he did. So when he took off, part of the reason they got lost is because they didn't know the city as well as he did. That could be. And uh, so he'd have to take, you'd have to, you'd have to take his perspective on that. And that's, that's right. Cause I think he might've been, and I, it's been 30 years. I think he might've been the lead vehicle, yes, but yeah. the, the convoy then split. But of course, then they cleaved off when we had that first uh, wounded in action. So they sent those three vehicles back, which re- reduced our number of Humvees by uh, probably a third. Right. And uh, you know, it's, it's it's just these are battlefield decisions that people right. have to make, and you it, can armchair quarterback them. But in the t- in the moment, people are making the best decisions they can. Let's let's go back to what you were talking about a moment ago when Cliff Walcott's helicopter gets hit. Um, you know, this hadn't happened to you guys before. Uh, are you aware that it gets hit? Do you see it? And when you find out that it does get hit, what is your reaction? So I was very aware it got hit, and then I was very aware it went down. I didn't see it go down because at the same time that happened, I was actually dragging a steel buddy of mine back down the street. He'd been shot, and I was dragging him back to friendly lines. I turned him over to a medic, a Delta medic named uh, Bob. Is another amazing, amazing guy. So many amazing people out there. But so I didn't actually see the helicopter go down, but of course, my job as a combat controller, I'm I'm monitoring the helicopter nets. I'm coming. I'm I'm monitoring the the C2 net. I'm monitoring the Ranger inner team. I'm I'm listening to what the Delta Force guys are doing, it, and, and I'm also talking to the other combat controllers. That that's our job. We're on the battlefield. Tactically, we're more connected to different networks than anybody else. It's it's what makes us very effective is the ability to have a lot of SA situational awareness. So. Once I got back to the vehicle, I, I left Howie uh, with the medic and, and uh, I was back with the, the Rangers. Um, you know, at that point, we knew we got to go get the guys. And some of the folks took off on foot and I wasn't fast enough or I probably would have ran down there on foot as well. Um, but I was with the vehicle convoy and that turned out to be where most of the carnage took place uh, on the American side was. Right. You know, aside from the helicopter crashes and the loss of the other crew uh, with Randy Shugart and Gary Gordon and, and, and Durant's helicopter, most of the guys who, were, who got shot up pretty badly were on the vehicle convoy. And, mm-hmm. uh, and again, you can't know these things when you're in the gunfight. One of the reasons I wasn't really working Little Birds for airstrikes around the convoy was I figured, incorrectly as it turns out, that with us having crew served weapons, we had Mark 19 40 millimeter grenade launchers, and you know we had M2 50 cal heavy machine guns on the convoy. We put out more firepower than the guys who were blocked up over at the helicopter crash, the first helicopter crash. And uh, you know we took a lot of casualties, but um, that's combat. When and, when, uh, when it starts to unfold, um, you know. To this point, again, yeah, you have Blackburn who misses the ropes. Todd, Private Todd Blackburn misses the ropes, and that's part of the, yeah. the three vehicles you mentioned before. Jeff Stroop had to peel off; they had to take Blackburn back. Pillow gets killed on the way back as well, um, while he's while he's manning the fifty cal. Um, and you know, now you see this helicopter go down. Are you st- when do you start to get a point? 
to feel like, hey, we're we're losing the initiative here. We're losing the adv- the tactical advantage that we had because no, so many other things had happened. We we lost we lost the initiative and the tactical advantage as soon as that helicopter hit the ground because we got to go get those guys, and so that 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 constricts your ability to do what we do best: move fast, overpower people. You know, take the audacious route when you got to go and get folks. And, you know, part of what happened around that first crash site was we couldn't recover Cliff's body because the helicopter had collapsed on. And so, you know, we this is an American trait that I think is exhibited on the battlefield to a greater extent than almost maybe any other culture. Got to get that up. You got you got you can't come home without everybody. And so that's what bogged us down all through the night was getting his body out. So at that, to answer your question, yeah, at that point. Yeah, but did you, you know, feel like you were on the, I know you lose the initiative, but are you emotionally starting to feel, mentally starting to feel like this is going to get worse before it gets better? Well, I definitely knew it was going to get worse. And, and it kept getting, on the vehicle convoy, it kept getting worse. There was, there was a lot of moving parts and dynamism that's happening on, in, a, in, a, in, an, in an entity like a vehicle convoy that is now trying to find its way suddenly to one crash site, which wasn't on the objective plan, which we're not quite sure exactly where it is. And then second helicopter crash crashes. And what are you going to do with that? And at the same time, this convoy is experienced visceral combat in a way that is Hollywood. I mean, just to say it's Hollywood. I saw things that I would only expected to have seen in a movie like so we got so well guys are getting killed in great numbers and we're starting to run out of ammunition but just the surreality of things i you know there was a guy i really respect who who was a delta operator and uh, he, we rpg hit the vehicle behind mine and this guy was just physically he was just uh shredded by this thing and to see that guy struggling to to stay alive his name was Briz martin i didn't really know him well, but that was a very inspiring thing, and it's a hard thing to see. You know, at the same time, just weird, weird stuff is is happening, man. I I've told this story a lot. When we rolled up on the objective, and uh, I'm at the this four way intersection, and or we're the lead vehicle now, and I looked one block down to the west, I think it was. There's this donkey tried tied to an olive tree in the middle of this intersection. And like gunfire is going past this donkey, and he is a very unhappy donkey. His ears are back, and you know. And I remember I got out of my vehicle and I started doing my thing, and I looked at that donkey and I and I said this: I'm like, you're fucked. I just I, this donkey's going to get killed. <laughs> Forty five minutes later, when we rolled off the objective, I have as we rolled off, I happened to look down, and there was that donkey tied to that tree, without a scratch on him. I just thought that is the luckiest donkey in in, in the world because the volume of fire. It is it's just hard to comprehend. Even guys who've been in a lot of gunfights and a lot of our guys have, from that, you know, Brad Thomas, you know, he's gone on and done a lot of things. Gallagher, who was a ranger, it was the SFC and at the time and was the NCOIC of the Vehicle Convoy, went on to get a Silver Star in Iraq. Like people have seen a lot of stuff, still come back and go, never saw a gunfight quite like that. The volume of fire was just astounding. But you know, you do what you, you focus on what you're supposed to focus on for better or worse, you know, and uh, and that's the best you can do. Do you think there's a point where you're going to die there? No. Yeah. 
but but it but it, it it follows away like you know gunfights for people who've never been in them they think it's a movie and like a gunfight is just happening but gunfights have peaks and lulls things are happening and then things aren't happening and the yeah. bad guys are trying to figure stuff out and they're getting tired too man like you're still humans out there engaged in this ultimate contest of who's going to come out on top. But, you know, in my vehicle, everybody's getting shot. Um, I just, for a number of times, I'm like, I'm just waiting for my turn to get shot here. You know, I patched up a couple guys who got shot. I was just waiting for my turn. And, and sometimes I'm like, uh, I'm not going to get back to the base. I'm just going to die. But at the same time, I'm still trying to think this is what I have to do. So, you know, I was scared, then I was angry, then I was frustrated, then I was like, okay, this is working, shit, no, it's not. So then all those emotions are happening to you, I I, I feel. I can't speak for anybody else. No, look, else. I mean, we, we talk about, you know, coming to grips with your own mortality a lot. I mean, I, it's something that I did, but I, I it was one of those things where I sort of was scared and had the fear before we drove out the wire right before we left and I was able to flush it, it and, and, and do it all to myself and, and say a prayer and get myself locked in, clear the mechanism, as they say, you know, get in the vehicle and go. And I never really thought about it in actual combat, but this lasted so long. I mean, my longest combat experience for duration might've been 30, 45 minutes, but you know, yeah, you were 18, for, 18 hours of, so, yeah, of this is way, too much, way too much thinking time. Um, and yes, even, even in 30 minutes of, of combat, there's still that lull, right? There's a, okay, gunfire stop for a second. Shit. What do we do now? You know, um, kind of deal. So I, I you're hundred percent correct on that, but I, I never had that feeling in between actual, you know, I never had a chance for my adrenaline to come down for me to pause for a second and think, and then oh. realize I'm still stuck in the middle of this city where I have no idea where the, how, how I'm going to get home tonight. So, you know, back when we got, when we fought our way back to the base, uh, in the middle of the afternoon and that convoy was shredded and we had a lot of wounded guys who needed care and we had dead guys who needed who needed to start that long journey home those are all very important things i ended up going to the hangar because i ran out of ammunition i made a very bad tactical decision as a combat controller when things really go bad my calculus was i'm going to be on the radio everybody else is going to be shooting bad guys so i didn't pack i had three magazines of 556 five, and i had five magazines of, for my 45 because I'm already carrying more weight than anybody else out there. So shit, man, I do not want to carry stuff. I don't have to carry And I ran out of ammunition fast. And I was taking ammunition from dead and wounded guys. So when we got back to the compound at the airport, and I went in the hangar, I went and got like 11 magazines. And I'm, I sat down at the table in the air force section and I was sitting there with, uh, the only other, my other seal buddy, um, Homer and we're loading magazines, man. And I just remember looking at him, we were just silently the hangar was like a ghost town everybody was out doing some everybody else was getting ready or doing whatever and everybody else was out in the gunfight and i'm back at base and i looked at him i'm like man i don't want to go back out there it's not a question of whether i'm gonna do it but i'm like i don't i don't want to go back out there and, and he's yeah. like yeah me neither and we just kept you know loading magazines and uh, but my two best friends are out there the mission is still going of course i'm gonna go back out there and by the way when i get back out there now this is where your human psychology and I think the resilience that comes from being trained in the way that we are in special ops comes to your aid and, and works to your advantage. Cause it's like, I'm going out there and if you get my way, I'm going to fucking kill you. And I'm going to go get these guys and we're all going to come back. Yeah. And you know, you, you can laugh in retrospect because tragedy plus time can sometimes equal comedy, but 
man, at the time, like, this is what I got to do. And I'm going to do well, it. I, I chuckle because I, I you know, I, I was, uh, long story short, I was, I was blown up in a, in a IED eight days before I left Iraq. Uh, yeah. And it was a mission I wasn't even supposed to be on. So to speak. like you were always supposed to be, but it was like a last minute thing that wasn't really planned. And then two days later, they had to go back out again. And I said, fuck that. I'm going and I'm sitting on the gun the whole time. And anybody who looks at me sideways, I'm going to put two in their freaking chest in about two seconds. And I sat on the turret as a captain, by the way, I was so pissed because I'm like, I'm going to go out there and whack somebody. The next person who looks at me sideways, I'm just pulling the trigger on them. Uh, and I, and went I out- felt the same way. You know, when we went out, the, the volume of out going fire from our convoy the second real convoy which was the ultimate rescue convoy was an impressive thing to see but you've touched on something that matters to me and i think i don't know if i'm different than a lot of other guys in this way but you know because i felt the same way you did you get in my way i I didn't feel i shot anybody who did i didn't have to which is i'm very fortunate in because you don't know about these things in the early stages of this type of gunfight people who are pointing out your position do you shoot that woman that's a dilemma. It's a gray area. You have to make a decision on that. You put around in her, maybe you're saving lives. You put around in her, maybe you're taking a life. Those things come back to you later in life, I feel. And philosophically, I struggled with having killed people because, and I talk about this a lot when I, I was just in Germany the, the other week, uh, helping an organization with resilience. You know, killing a human does nothing to advance you as a person, I feel. This is just my philosophy. Even when sanctioned as in war, like you and I have been in, or justified in self-defense, someone's going to attack your family, you kill that person, that's justified. Kill that person. If they're going to rape or, 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 or murder your family members, you got to kill that person. But what it doesn't do for you as an individual is help you evolve or advance, I feel. And I struggled with that philosophically for a very long time. Well- Afterwards, I mean, I, I think you're 100 percent correct, but you know, I would even push it even further. Um, and and I've said this a, a thousand times on this show. The minute you pull the trigger downrange, you the person you were is dead, and you are now somebody different. You can't I ever agree 100 percent. Even if it doesn't hit the target, even if it doesn't do what it's intended to do, which it sometimes doesn't, as we know. Right. The 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 whether it's conscious or unconscious. The decision you make in pulling that trigger with the intended consequences of what it is automatically change you. There's no escaping that, I don't think. That's and something think we this is go ahead, sorry. Might not have been cognizant when you guys went through Black Hawk Down. I think we're certainly cognizant of it now. Uh, I think it's it's fair to say, and everybody openly agrees with it. Back when you guys were going through it, there was much more of a business transaction rationalization of yeah. if I not agree. if not not my guys, you guys kind of deal. Well, that's how we're gonna reconcile all this. Yeah, and it's funny because for a while afterwards, I remember I was, you know, I was married a couple of times, like a lot of people who sacrificed their personal relationships for their job, you know, family where we came from, sadly, it was third. But uh, I remember I was talking to, this is maybe a half a dozen years after Black Hawk Down, and I was talking to this marriage counselor, and I had some things, you know, the marriage was over, I was married to the wrong person, but I, I called her up. I said, hey, I'd like to come talk to you. She goes, okay, well, come on in. I said, it's just me. She goes, yeah, it's fine. So I showed up and I said, I'm worried I might be a psychopath because I didn't feel bad about having killed the, the people that I'd killed. And she laughed. I said, okay, maybe that's a good sign. I'm not sure. But she goes, psychopaths don't ask that question. And I went, oh, okay. 
but that was what I realized now is that was that was the first steps in a journey for me that took a very long time because I went through some real dark periods later on where I I struggled with having done what I've done because again at the end of the day I didn't shoot any women or kids but I still shot some people you know I don't know how many people I killed I don't even know and so yeah it was a gunfight but I don't know those people don't know them and you never know the people that you kill in a battlefield. You watch a movie and some guy goes through the wallet of the German he killed in World War II and he sees a picture of a woman and kid and he realizes, oh, humanity. That doesn't happen in real gunfights, man. You don't know the people you're, you're, that you're out there. In a city of a million people, man, that, there's a lot of people out there. But anyway, not to digress on that, but for me, I, it was a very long journey back to trying to reconcile what right. I'd done with who I am. And you know, mentioned Jeff Struker. I saw Jeff Struker change. Jeff Struker, and I'm sure he said this, I've never seen his interviews, but I knew Jeff before. Not, we weren't real good friends, but I'd seen him enough and we'd talked. That next day, he was a different man. He found God on the battlefield. That's what happens to some people. And I know that's part of his, his journey. Mm-hmm. I did not find God on the battlefield. So I, I, went, I went the opposite direction. And everybody finds someplace that they didn't expect to your point. Look, I, I appreciate you uh, sharing and, and the candor with which and the, the grace with which you explained it, because it, it's a hundred percent fair to say, and I don't, I don't think anybody who's watching or listening to this, or even, you know, certainly me would, would, would ever look sideways uh, at you for, for sharing that. I think that's un- the unfortunate reality and the un- unintended consequence of, of the nature of combat and, and what it does to everybody and why some of these conversations are so important. Um, because there's somebody who, you know, in Iraq or Afghanistan had to go through the same thing and is feeling the same thing. Like I, you know, I, I, I wasn't, and the it same. takes time. It takes, yeah. it can take 10 years to manifest it did for me. And I'm worried more about, you know, in the special ops community, so, so many people from black special ops, you know, from the JSOC community have more combat experience than any generation of Americans, any including the civil war, real combat, these people have been through it. Where it starts to manifest, it takes a long time. And, you know, you can talk about cortisol and all these other things, the physiology that goes along with it and the psychology from Freud the Young to whomever you want, to Eckhart Tolle, who I'm a big fan of, like whatever you, or the Bible, if you're a Christian, you know, Jeff Struker, man, that guy found his destiny on that battlefield that day. I'm not here to speak for Jeff. But I, I've seen what he's done since then, and I really applaud him. But it's okay to have any experience and outcome. It doesn't have to be like anybody else's. I definitely went the other direction. And I, you know, I became a Buddhist years later. And in a lot of ways, wow. I'm a pacifist, man. My, my current project, The Power of Awareness, which is my last book, and the institute I founded is to help people not be victims of crime. Not through martial arts, but intuition and situational awareness, because for me, that's a much better use of what a time I have left on this planet than still being involved in JSOC and hunting people down because nobody does that better. But I'll tell you, man, it leaves a, you're carrying a bag with you the rest of your life. Yeah. Uh, to say the least. Um, you mentioned that you guys had come back and, and re- rearmed and refitted with the convoy. Is there a moment where, and you had said all the people that had been wounded and killed at this point, is there a moment where you look around you and you realize the toll that this battle has already taken on you. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, you know, are you over- emotionally overwhelmed, overwhelmed by it? 
No, but, but I think that's the value of the training and the stuff we did. Listen, even for a lot of Delta Force guys that were out there, and they were more mature in their evolution than the Rangers because the average Ranger age was 19, right? Um, for a lot of them, this was really all of our first real big combat. It right. just was because it was big combat. And even the other gunfights, we've been in a handful of other engagements while we were out there. So, you know, a lot of people are on a steep learning curve already. Um, but for me, you know, when you're helping carry people out of vehicles and, the, the, you know, the, the, the back cargo area that Humvee is just covered in blood and it's all friendly blood, you know, it, it, you're just feeling it. My vehicle was shredded. The tires were shot out. The windows were – everything was shot up in my vehicle. I didn't get back in my vehicle. I had to get in another vehicle. I'm surprised we got our vehicle back. You know, we left some vehicles out there, which is – it sounds like a clinical oh, – we just left them. Man, they were destroyed. That means the people on that vehicle were experiencing that volume of fire or the ferocity of what's happening. So, you know, for me, yeah, I, it was at this point, it was it was a surreal. It's you know, it's surreal in the sense that you're absorbing a lot of things that you haven't ever absorbed before. They're new experiences in a lot right. of ways, and you recognize that. I think it's some subconscious, some subconscious level that it's profound, but profound things don't really manifest themselves until later on. It takes time. You yeah. have to reflect oh. and you have to deal with them. <laughs> and it's not a lot of time for uh, profound things to... to, to Zero time. Just Zero time. Like, like, I got to get my yeah. batteries. I got to yeah. be thinking about what I'm going right. to do. Uh, I'm with a new bunch of Rangers. I don't know. I get in the back of this Humvee. I'm like, hey, what's your name, buddy? Or some Ranger private. And he's like, whatever his name was. I'm like, were you out there before? He's like, no. I'm like, all right, well, we're going to sit you know, we're going out together. We'll, we'll see you out there and off you go. Um, just from a, I'm trying to recall from a time sake standpoint, chronologically, when you guys went back, had Durant, Durant's helicopter had or had not been shot down by that point. Oh yeah. It was shot down while we were still out on the first right. thing. Both, the two were both still out there. Forgive me. My, I'm getting old. Yeah. Uh, we all gallon of information to a shot glass of a brain kind of deal. Uh, a lot spills out. Um, so you're going. When do you start to hear about Gary Gordon and Randy Shukart? Like, well, we, I, I knew they went in, but nobody so knows anything. Before at this you guys point. had actually gotten back. Well, so while we're while we're refitting, going out, the sun is going down. Those guys were both already dead. Okay, we don't know that, but because it's 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 another proving of a negative. You're not getting any information from those two snipers because they're now dead. You're not getting any information from Mike Durant, the only survivor of the four man crew, and the two Delta Force operators went out there because he's a POW already. He's already in the hands of the enemy. You don't know those things. You just know that helicopter crashed. We inserted two more guys on the ground. We got helicopters that can see things, but now that's being mobbed. Did they run off and hide? Are our guys in the building? Are they masked somewhere? Did they get anybody out? You don't know those things at this point. So when you had heard that Randy and Gary had gone in, did you think that they, they like, were you like, okay, they, there's no way they're getting out alive. I would not have expected them to get out alive, but I wasn't thinking about that, that time right. because sure. that's not my job because we're going to go back out to the city, drive into the city and then split up and send forces to both helicopters, try and recollapse that into one entity Exfil to the Pakistani stadium, which was owned, was we call it that because the Pakistani UN forces were there and it was a secure area, easier to get to and more proximal to the battlefield than getting back to the airport, which is where we were based out of. That's the plan. So at that point, this is what I'm thinking about. What do I need to do when I'm out there? And, 
you know, and you just do that. And then ultimately we, we, we recovered um, everybody and we fell back to the Pakistani stadium. And that was another surreal. That's when it started to set in for me when I realized just how much devastation, one, we had visited on the enemy and two, how much damage we had sustained as a force because we're loading, I'm loading guys onto helicopters that are dead and we're putting them on there. I still got to drive back to the airport and I'm like, okay, what's that going to be like? And, um, you know, I remember my buddy, Tim Wilkinson, who's an Air Force PJ and received the Air Force Cross that day, justifiably so. Um, and he'd only, he'd never been on the city. He'd only been in the search and rescue helicopter. So I turned to him, I'm like, hey, do you want to ride back with me? I'm in the very last vehicle at the end of the convoy. You want to ride back with me? He'd never seen the city. And he said, yeah, okay. I thought that was probably not a smart decision, <laughs> but because getting in the helicopter, you're back at the airport. For us, it took another hour and not right. a lot happened. But as soon as we drove out and the volume of fire picked up again, I'm like, shit, man, here we go again. And, uh, you know, at that point, you're just back in it and you just have to do what you're supposed to do. That's the secret to heroism. I, I talk about this sometimes in, in my how not to be a victim of crime. When you have to act courageously to defend yourself in the case of a crime or to protect your teammates, as we're talking about here in Black Hawk Down, the real secret to heroism is just focusing on what you know you have to do. And then you just go do it. And that's what all the real heroes I've known in my life, when they were faced with those circumstances and they had to rise to that occasion, they didn't tap into some super ability that no one else has. No. They went back to what they knew they had to do. And that's that's what allowed them to become the hero that we now respect. I want to I want to dive into the moment when you guys get back to the Pakistani stadium and, and what you talked about recognizing or realizing. Or you, I, I, but I, I want to go back to one more thing first in reference to the lost convoy, because I should have done this chronologically before. You know, as you guys are driving around, you're making left hand turns or right hand turns, you're hitting dead ends and this, that and the other. Is there a part of you? One, I guess that wishes as a combat control that you were in a helicopter. But two, um, you know, that's like, what the hell is going on? Why don't we know where we are and what we're doing? Like, I mean, are you frustrated by the fact that you're well, just walking around getting shot up ad nauseum? Well, I, I didn't know exactly. I, I knew in general where we were because I had my map and I knew where we started and I knew why we're following. And I'm talking, I am talking to a helicopter, though. I'm talking to the wrecking bird. That's who I was talking to. I'm like, we're trying to get here. I need you to guide me. So I was actually guiding the entire convoy and I'm in the lead vehicle. What I didn't realize at the time was that communication within the convoy had broken down. So not all the Rangers were talking to each other. And it was one of the frustrations that Sergeant Gallagher had with the situation as the NCOIC. So I want to bog down on, on all that stuff, but you know, they're trying to give me a right turn. And I would look at this, you know, I'd turn right and it'd be a little tiny alley. And I'm like, I don't want to take that turn. I want you to give me another way. And the reason I would say something like that is, very small alleyway. If I get hit by an RPG, because RPGs are everywhere, man. Like it's yeah. a Hollywood movie. There's RPGs going everywhere. If you hit one of those vehicles, the other vehicles can't get past it. I'm like, I need a wider street. Right. So these are all the kind of things that are happening. What really happened in the end was, as I'm guiding, I'm, I'm I told the ranger commander, I'm like, hey, I'm I'm going to take us to the, the crash site. And he's like, yeah, go ahead and do that. Assuming that they're talking. We turned a couple of turns. I came around the corner, and this is if you read Mark's book, you'll 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 recognize this passage. I turned the corner and my 50 gunner starts shouting RPG. 
Unfortunately, he was changing out ammo on the 50, so he couldn't even shred this guy. It was like point blank distance from us. And I'm looking out the right side of my window. I don't have my rifle out because I'm on my handset, so I can't even get a shot off. And this guy steps right out, points this thing at us, and fires it at me. And I can, to this day, still see that warhead coming right for my face. And it missed the vehicle, passed my head by about a foot or two, so it detonated behind us. Now I'm screaming at the driver, hey, back up, back up. And I'm trying to figure out why Mike Pringle, my, my favorite Ranger 50 gunner, is not killing this dude. And he's down with his hand around his ears when I started shouting RPG because, um, I, you know, he was changing ammo. But when we backed up and I'm looking behind us, I'm like, shit, we're going to run into the vehicles behind us. There was nobody there. We were all alone. We had driven off by ourselves. And at this point, I'm like, we're going to die right now because we're going to get hit by another RPG. No one knows where we are. I don't know why we're separated because it's not my job to talk to the other Rangers in the convoy. And I'm thinking I'm going to die right here. I can't believe it. And, um, but we got our way, we found our way back to the vehicle convoy. And uh, that's when they made the decision. We got to go back because we had more wounded and dead guys than able-bodied guys. And we were running out of ammunition, nothing we could do out there. We got to go back and get more guys, get more ammo, get more vehicles. Then we can come back and rescue everybody. At that point, I'll tell you though, I was pretty dejected because we were leaving guys behind, including my two best friends, Tim Wilkinson and the, another combat controller, Pat Rogers, who was the, the search and rescue combat controller. And I'm like, I can't leave these guys out here. But that's talking about leaving, leaving those guys. They were, they were basically surrounding the first crash site. Trying they're to the first crash site because they yeah. fast broke in. Right. So anyway, you know, that, so uh, I'm not sure how we got onto that, the lost convoy, but then we just worked our way back and we lost another vehicle on the way. And, you know, our tires, the run flat tires, this is 1993. They were not the best run flat tires and our, and our doors were not, you know, they were rated for 7.62, but I got shot in the chest because it came through my little door. And so, you know, all that stuff's happening. And the main, same time, you're going, you're, you're glad you're going to make it to the airport, you hope. But at the same time, you're just sick inside because it's like, we got to go back and get these guys. We can't leave these guys out there. How long is it going to take to get them? Took a long time to go back and get them. And that's, that's a hard thing to deal with, I think. Yeah. Um Unreal. Uh, all right. So let's just kind of just wrap, you know, kind of put a time on it. So you go back, you go back in, you go back out. It's starting to get nightfall now. Um, obviously, you're coming back out with a lot more firepower, a lot more uh, fight to the enemy and everything else. Um, you're out and there. We, for- and we own the night. So, you know, well, things are, yeah. are going mean, to work for us that would not work you had in the daytime. Little bird gun runs going back and forth throughout the city, right? I mean, just sort of laying waste to everything in their path. But, you, I mean, you don't get out of there until sunup again. So, yeah. you, right? I mean, um, when you guys get back to the Pakistani Stadium, you've now been out there for the better part of 18-plus hours, uh, all said and told from the first shot fired to when you guys are back, you know, in and you have everybody out, save Mike Durant, who was obviously captured at that point in time. Yeah. Um, you start to look around. And you see what you guys had just went through. What are your first thoughts and emotions? Well, the first thing for me was I was looking for my two best friends. I found Pat and Tim, and I was just glad they were alive, you know. And uh, and then I, I started to look around because that was my very first. Once we rolled into there and guys were falling off vehicles and jumping off vehicles, like we've just had guys piled onto everything. Um, I, oddly, I remember some Pakistani had made some rice with lamb and they were passing around cups of 
man, I hadn't eaten anything. And it's like, man, I wolfed that down and it tasted great. And I'm looking around and I'm realizing this is, this is the aftermath of something that is, um, you know, it, 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 we were now combat in a, incapable at that point because you know we lost more helicopters we don't have that many helicopters we lost some vehicles we lost a lot of you know half of the force was wounded or dead most of them wounded and uh you know 50 percent casualties that's a lot of casualties and so we've got guys who are getting treated um i i saw some pakistanis that were help trying to help pick up some americans to put their bodies on the blackhawks and i Nothing against the Pakistanis, especially back at this time, because they were really helpful to us. I'm like, I can't let a Pakistani pick up that dead American. So I went over to help carry guys, load them on helicopters, because I I, I suddenly felt like I had to do that. They needed to be carried by an American. Did you not care who it was? As long as you did, you know, they were already they were already they were either bagged or covered with with ponchos or ponchos. I I don't even know who I carried, but. Um, and, and it doesn't matter. It was just, it was seemed important to me at the time. And then the helicopters took off with everybody who was going back by helicopter. It was just the rest of us standing around in the stadium and we got to form up our convoy and go out again. And I was like, son of a bitch. Okay. You know, here we, here we go. And Tim hopped in the back with me and um, you know, it's uh, we were that we were the very last guys to roll in the gate. I was in the very last, back end of the very last vehicle to come in that uh, fight. And um, that's, uh, you know, it changes your life. I uh, I would trade what I learned from that gunfight to get those guys back, the 18 people that we lost, but that's not how it works, is it? No. Um, when you get back to base, um, obviously, again, Mike Durant's still out there. You, you have to go get him at some point. I mean, is the, is the energy saying, let's go back out there, let's get Mike, and uh oh yeah everybody's ready let's the great thing about these kind of humans is doesn't matter how long you have to drive them they'll go till they're dead or successful and like we want to go back out there and then finally they they came out and said we're standing down but you gotta remember and i'm i struggling with this from a an information flow standpoint at this point because it's 30 years i think at this point we know that mike is captured we don't know the disposition of any of these other guys then this is where it starts to get anger starts to build. We're we're watching CNN in the corner and they're showing live from up the street Somalis dragging dead naked Americans and we're trying to figure out who it is because it's people we know, it, you know. So are you ready to go back out and wreck some havoc to get back either those bodies and those people? Yeah, man. And if you're going to stand in the way, you should be prepared to die because we're going to kill you to get those bodies back and recover our, what we now know it later in the day, it became very obvious that Mike was, was probably the only survivor, but uh, it's a hard thing to be watching something live on television and it's just up the street. And that's what you were just doing. That did not sit and well. You were told to stand down at that point. Well, we needed, you got to let people sleep. The helicopter pilots have been taking go pills and flying forever. We've been out in the street at some point after 24 hours of, of, of sustained operations, the first 18 of which are a gunfight, you, you can't drive your people because it's not one. Sometimes no action is better than wrong action. You got to right. stop and think about what you're going to do. That was beyond my level at that time. I was a staff sergeant. That's for General Garrison and, and Lee Van Arsdale, these other guys that you've talked to, Gary Harrell, whoever. 
that were out there making those command decisions. I'm not here to second guess those guys at all because that's probably the right decision. But at that point for me, and I'm, I can only speak for myself, man, I, I, I was going to have to take a crash. And the, the hangar was a ghost town, man, because we evacuated uh, you know, 100 people or something out of, the, out of a 400-man task force. Wow. So, you know, I'm hanging out in the hangar talking with Tim and, and Pat, and we're trying to process this thing. I think I slept for a little bit. They told us we weren't going to do anything. They got a new package coming, which is new helicopters, new Delta Force Squadron, more guys from the 2-4, more Rangers. They're like, hey, they're scrambling to get that out here right now. We're going to stand down. Everybody needs to crash. I went out and sat on the sandbag wall and smoked a cigar and, and, and talked with Tim. And we were starting the, the process of processing what had happened. You know, what are we going to do? What's this look like? Some of our guys are already sent back. Scotty fails. Our other PJ had been shot. So he was in Germany already. And, you know, it's that it becomes a very personal journey again. It becomes less about the mission for a little bit. And it's more about you trying to understand what has just happened and, and what you're going to have to do next. But even after some sleep, man, everybody refits right away, then crashes out because they might come in and shake you and go, let's go. Well, you need to be ready. Clean your gun, put in new batteries, replace your med kit, you know, do what you got to do. Um, so at what point in time um, do you get all the bodies recovered? Took several days. The Somalis, the Somalis offered them up and brought them back. And then there's the whole negotiation for the release of Michael Durant and his chain of custody. You've interviewed Mike, so he'll tell you, I'm sure he's told you about that. But, you know, for us, uh, it was pretty clear that um, whatever we did going forward was going to be different than what we'd done before, because, um, you know, politics were going to reassert itself. Americans back home. My mom and dad, you know, my, my, everyone's walked the street. They know we're out there and they're seeing these dead guys dragged. Is that my husband? Is that my dad? Is that my son? You don't know. So that has an effect on the politics and the politics are going to drive what happens next. America was not ready to see that. Um, Even, even post Vietnam, America was not ready to see uh, bodies being dragged through the streets. I, I would argue that the second world war changed um, unconditional surrender as a, as a viable means of pursuing a campaign. Here's why I say that. That was the first time that people back home were seeing what a battlefield looked like. And the U.S. news did a, a, a pretty conscientious job of not trying to show any American bodies. So it was sterilized slightly. But you're seeing dead Germans and Japanese or whatever the case may be. When the public starts to see that for themselves, what they're sons and daughters are going through, they're not going to let you prosecute a war to an unconditional surrender. They're going to want you to settle early because they don't want to see that happening to their, their kids anymore because it's, it's now become very real for them. And I, this is my own, again, philosophy on it, but I, I don't think you're going to find that they'll let you do that. And since that time, we've never prosecuted something to an unconditional Surrender. Consider the first Gulf War. We didn't drive all the way to Baghdad and replace Saddam Hussein because we felt we put him in a check. So the politics says we don't want to have wreck any more carnage. We don't want any more dead Americans coming home. Stop now. That And this is just another extension of that same sort of human psychology, in my opinion. When, when the decision is made from Washington um, to pull out Task Force Ranger, 
um, and, and bring you guys back to the States. What was your initial reaction? I have no respect for Bill Clinton. Not that I really did before, but again, here's this guy who is the leader and the commander in chief, knowing that he's driven by politics, who sent us out there, then we pay a price. And by the way, we successfully prosecute the missions we're sent there to do. The Somalis were scared shitless we were going to come out because who knows how many people we killed? A thousand, two thousand? Those are very real numbers. We don't know. We lost 18 guys. They lost, call it 1,500. And I'm not trying to make it clinical, but they didn't want us to come out in the street because they got more bloodied than we did. Man, they, the Americans, they know when we come back this time, gunships have showed up. They're flying overhead. They'd experienced gunships before. We got a whole other force package. We come out on your street. You get in the way. We're going we're gonna to slaughter the enemy. We just were. So now you've got the enemy, the Somali militias, right where you want them. Politically and from a human psychological standpoint, and what does Bill Clinton do? He tell he projects this: we're not going to do any more combat. We're done with that. Holy shit! Who says that? You just paid in blood to put the enemy where you got him, and then you tell him, "Don't worry, we're not going to come back and continue to do what we said our purpose was in the first place." And then a few weeks later, you send the very same unit that was hunting him down to Somalia as a protective detail to fly Muhammad Adid to some peace talks or whatever the hell they did. I didn't, at that point, I didn't give a shit. And I still right. don't give a shit. And, uh, you know, so at that point, it's it's over. The politics when, when have I, when I the American soldier. When, when I had said earlier that uh, in the in the History Channel documentary of a Black Hawk Down, um, you had oh, yeah. such a poignant and, uh, and prophetic quote. And again, this is all in the pre-9-11 world. And I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't remember exactly 100%, but I remember the key notion of it. You said that you have to have, as a politician, you have to have as much courage to send people into battle that they have to fight in that battle. You have to. Oh, have- yeah. I, I forgot I said that, but I agree with that statement because you you then have to have the courage. This is what Bill, Bill Clinton failed as a human in, across many fronts. Uh, morally or or whatever as a leader, I feel I don't know if he's a bad guy or not. I don't even know him. But but at that point, you have the obligation to stand up and and continue to do what you said you were going to do because otherwise, all you've done is betray those people. I said it better, obviously, twenty five years ago. But <laughs> but it, I, I tell you, look, it always stuck with me, and it sends chills up my spine. In a good way, in a sense that, like, you know, we in the post 9-11 world, we now use the military as almost like a bargaining chip, as, as, a, as a chess piece in everything that we do. Right? We'll just send the military. You know, we don't need unilateral power anymore to go send American soldiers to fight and die. Um, it, it's not something the president needs to do as commander in chief. That said, if you want to assume heavy is the head, right, if you want to assume that responsibility, you better do so with the same amount of gumption that those people who are putting their life on the line for you. And throughout the entire, you know, Iraq war and even Afghanistan, even to the end of it, um, at the very ending with the withdrawal. And again, this spanned what? What are we talking about? Four presidents now, whatever it is. Um, It's one of those things where uh, unequivocally, 
I don't know that we saw that a whole lot. I think we saw a lot of indifference. I think we saw a lot of um, more politically guided decisions than necessarily, you know, uh, anything that had to do with courage. Um, and the repeated ask of American soldiers to continue to fight these wars, to continue to go back into battle, to continue to uh, serve some sort of political end. Um, and a lot of us all ask the question, the hell are we doing? Well, and I think that's, you know, it perhaps at least, is at worth least, entertaining. In Somalia, you guys had a very clear, defined objective, and that's something that yes. we had in right. Iraq and Afghanistan. It was easier for a politician in that instance, which is why I think Bill Clinton's moral failure was so absolute, than it is in some of these other things that are coalition-driven and driving world events and, you know, those sorts of things. I would argue that there's a case to be made that the president of the United States, whoever he or she is, should have served in the military, even if it's just ROTC or National Guard, because you are the commander in chief. And to be the commander, you should have some context. You know, the only two presidents we've had in living memory that actually served in the military were both the Bushes. You know, and I don't do politics, you know, so anyone listening, I don't. Trump and Biden, I don't give a shit about that stuff. You know why? I've done my time. I, I, I don't engage in politics. But but I but those two individuals had both served in the military. One had been in war and shot down in the Pacific, and the other had at least served in the National Guard as a pilot and whatever his record was, and I don't even care. But both of those individuals had an understanding of what that meant. And uh, I was always a big fan of Bush Sr. because he was a selfless public servant, both in the military, then with the CIA, not for glory, especially back during the Cold War. He was just committed to the country. And um, his great success was the coalition he put together during the first Gulf War. You know, he didn't get reelected because uh, he's not that slick of a guy. Bill Clinton is. Anyway, all that aside, I think there's value to your point, uh, Mark, that that you because you have this obligation, you should have enough familiarity that you can actually stand on that as a foundation. Well, and again, look, it's it's a trickle down effect, right? And we even see, I've had plenty of people on this show where we have even commanders uh, who are in a talk or at a you know remote base making decisions for platoon leaders, platoon commanders, people yeah, on the ground. A challenge. They're not in the same. And it's one of those things where it's like, well, it's, you know, on the on the the converse side of it, where there's there's a lieutenant or whatever. Some first class saying, look, I don't think we need to go in here. This is not going to serve us well. And then you get the phone call. Well, you go. Well, you're not here. I am like you have to give me the, the you know, latitude to understand the situation and how we're going to traverse it and figure it out and and, and gain some tactical advantage. But yet, you know, again, uh, we, it's we've, the dilemma of of persistent ISR presence because they are looking through that soda straw of whatever mechanism it is. could be a satellite, could be a drone, doesn't matter. could be a manned platform. The temptation is very, very hard for leaders. And again, that goes back to a human dynamic. All leaders struggle with that. They want to do something for their people. I must do something. And I can see this. And I don't think my guy on the ground can see that. And that might be partially true. But at the end of the day, I agree, you know, pushing leadership decisions down to the bottom level is always uh, a word I rarely use, a sound, uh, you know, method on the battlefield. Ultimately, 
commanders own what happens to their people. And that's the other reason that they feel they have to make those kind of decisions. And I, you know, I, man, I spent 31 years in the military, almost 10 years of that, I was a squadron commander. That's normally a two year gig. I think it's why my hair turned white. I don't know, but, <laughs> but you know, it's like, so when you're in those positions, having been an operator first and then later being, you know, an officer and a commander, I, I bring, I think a, a pretty good balanced perspective on, on, on those two realities. Um, and the challenges for each are no more valid than the other, you know? I mean, I, again, and, and I give them all the credit in the world because it's just not something that ever happens anymore. And particularly again, uh, with the withdrawal of Afghanistan and the, the, the catastrophic failure that that was the fact that major general William Garrison penned a letter, um, detailing yeah. where everything wrong and why it was his fault and taking responsibility for it all is a relic of a time gone by. Uh, we just don't see it anymore. You know, it's funny. Uh, I, I have a friend who works in, in political news and everything else. He's a former army uh, guy who served overseas and, and, you know, he was, he was doing national television and they were talking about the withdrawal of Afghanistan, how we've had no accountability. And somebody asked him what's taking so long. And he came up with this clever, you know, TV answer about this, that, and the other. And, and I, I, Shot him a note on social media and I said, I can answer the question for you. It's taking so long. Cowardice is what is taking so long because the military folks who either disagreed with the decision to withdraw or how it was executed won't speak up and undercut their commander. And the politicians who were elected who made the decision won't forego their election campaign to take responsibility enough for it. And that to me is simple cowardice. You know, and again, it goes back to what I, I, you know, in my mind, at least when I talked before about, you know, that, that sort of disdain for authority and my, 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 what I, I, whether it's boastful or not, I don't care. My impeccable integrity, if it's wrong and I'm wrong, I say, Hey, I made a mistake. That's on all I can do is go fix it now. Right. Like the, the quicker I atone for it, acknowledge it and, and own it as my own. We can all move on. But well, the longer- and I, and I think, you know, going back to Bill Garrison, the way in which he took responsibility even though he was the one who was asking for these other things and the politicians denied him that, that is the burden of leadership in the military. Ultimately, you're going to be left holding the bag for something that isn't maybe completely your fault. Uh, I respected him for a lot of reasons, um, but that is that is a big one. And, and the cowards in the politics that accepted that and then hung him up with it were, you know, he should have been moved on in his career to other things because he led that mission the best it could possibly have been led, in my opinion. This is just Dan Schindler. And for the record, I, I have not heard anybody. Yeah, I mean, not, no, no one from our community is going to say otherwise either. Nope. But but you can only ever speak for yourself. And the fact, it was just a, an act of, of typical political cowardice. And that's, you know, again, that goes back to why I think to be the ultimate commander of the most powerful force ever created in four and a half billion years on planet Earth. If you're in charge of that, Perhaps you should have had some rudimentary experience with it. Well, and again, but it, it goes back to what you talked about before, having the, the courage of, of sending people into battle. You know, Garrison had the courage to take responsibility for things he could have easily pointed the finger at that were valid. Yeah, Les Aspen and Bill Clinton, right. Yeah, I mean, for things that were valid to point a finger at and, and had repeated, hey, I asked for this stuff. I mean, you know, look, it's well documented at this point. We had Osama bin Laden in December of 2001, but due but, to Washington not providing X, Y, and Z to people on the ground, he was able to escape for another 10 years. 
I mean, but you in know. that in that in that dilemma of military, it's a burden. It truly is. Is both the honor and the uh, inability to maybe control your own destiny. Both those things reside side by side. That is leadership in a military organization where you have command over people's lives, which is which makes it different as a corporate structure than other corporate structures, because you're still telling people, I think you might die. I need you to go do this anyway. And I'm going to give you the best support I can, but you still might die and you're going to go do it. And that, that, that woman, you say that to, that's what she's going to have to go do, man. And uh, that's a very different world, but at the same time, then you're left holding that bag and there's nothing you can do about that. I remember my son who spent a number of years in the military he would always talk to me. He's like, it always seems so unfair to me. As he get promoted, he supervised things. He's like, I always feel like I'm responsible for things. And even if it's not, I don't have control over it. I'm like, yeah, that's it. There's yeah. no good caveat to that, period. It's just a period. It's like, yeah, that's it. And, and you're that's welcome. Welcome to what you're doing now. And uh, it's, it's a burden, man. But that's what makes it so honorable. That's why serving in the U.S. military in particular is such an honorable profession and way to spend at least a part of your life because ultimately you're not going to spend your whole life doing it unless you get killed in action but the fact is it's just a part of what you did for a period of your life i'm now doing other things you know and like many of the other guys you've interviewed we're off to whatever is next in your life and if, you know if i was to leave a message for people that are listening to this thing you know your life is always what you make it the military and the things we've been talking about here for the last almost two hours are just one way you can experience part of your life, but they're not the only way. And they can't and they shouldn't even define you, in my opinion. I'll, I'll add one more thought. You know, again, um, under taking command, uh, and I've had several of them th throughout my career, you know, you're responsible for everything your unit does and fails to do. But, yeah. you know, it, it should be clearly stated. Don't take command unless you're willing, 100% willing, without reservation or purpose of evasion, uh, willing to accept the absolute very worst of outcomes and all of the, all of it in its entirety without question, right? Because that's ultimately what command boils down to. You have to be willing to accept because the good outcomes are easy to accept, right? That's say, hey, uh, thank you. Pat me on the back. My, my guys are great. We all did a great job. But accepting the absolute worst of outcomes is something you have to be prepared to do without questioning it or looking at anybody else, you know, other than just saying it's my fault. I agree. And I responsibility. And I, I, but I also think it's the same responsibility of those who raise their right hand and swear their allegiance to the constitution, because sure. you're also accepting those same outcomes for you personally as a leader. You're talking about that burden, but I think for all of us who've been there, all, you know, and I think I can say this pretty confidently for anyone who's been in combat at the end of the day, what you realize is you have to just accept that it's going to, you could get, you will live with possibly the worst possible outcomes. Now, back to the mission that we have been talking about for most of our time together, you know, I, I think I can speak for almost all veterans of that, that battle or that deployment was, man, that was a very successful deployment. The day we went out to do this thing, and this is where the politics and the news cycle can paint you in a different narrative than is reality, it wasn't a failure at all. It cost us 18 lives, the lives of, of, of many other people on the other side. But in fact, we went out to get these guys that day and we got them. And I challenge any other country in the world to put 200 individuals in that situation and not only have them 
walk out alive, but be successful. And that's the, that is the great legacy of that battle. And I think it continues to what all U.S. service members are doing today. Well, perfectly well said. I won't try to, uh, to add anything to it. Um, I do want to ask you, I mean, look, again, you spent another, what is almost 20 years in uniform uh, after that? Yeah, was 31, a- actually. Yeah. 31 total. But after, after Black Hawk Down, you still had another, what, two oh, day, almost yeah. two, two days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Combined uh, by, you know, Gothic Serpent or Mogadishu, Black Hawk Down, whatever term you want to use. So what else in your career stands out as a as a highlight for you? I think the opportunity to have done things for other people that they may not even have known that you did on their behalf, I found that very satisfying as a commander to be able to do that. But, you know, really at the end of the day, this is my leadership perspective, it was to work for the people that I was in command of. I I found that I I was, I was in a, accidental or inadvertent commander. I had no aspirations to be commander. I didn't even, I got a direct commission. I didn't go to OROTC or OCS or any of that. I got commissioned immediate, uh, directly. And I ended up being a commander, which wasn't something I was really aspiring to. But once I got there, I really realized, man, you can do things for people as a commander. And, uh, and it really changed. I realized I had two great commanders in my entire career, two out of all the commanders I had directly above me. So I'm not going to name names or any of that stuff. Out of all those people, my aspiration was to be one of those for somebody else. I, whether I was successful or not, you'd have to ask somebody else. But that's that to me, that's what stood out was it wasn't a singular thing. It was the ability to continue to do things for others. Um, you know, I, I want to ask you about special operations because it's so, you know, cool now like it's so out there in the public it's so yeah. everything we want everybody to Just know me. um does that bother you at all i mean are you okay with it no but i think i here's what i think is more important than the public perception the 21 years we spent in afghanistan and in time in iraq and other places i went like yemen or wherever we were doing things special ops was prominent if not the focus and there's going to be a there's a reckoning that's happening now or an adjustment back to we're the supporting entity. When you look at what's going to happen in Europe, possibly, uh, you know, special ops becomes the supporting. It's not the pinnacle. We're here to do something for other people, not for those other people to do things for us. It's going to go back into the shadows to some extent. Will that genie ever go back in the bottle? No. But Americans and people around the world have always been intrigued by special ops. You know, the Israeli raid in Entebbe on July 4th, that was, that's an audacious mission, and they did it. They got a Mercedes that replicated the president's, and they rolled it off there, and that was, a, man, that was a ballsy operation. Those things are always going to captivate the, the, the public, and, uh, you know, I, I'm honored and I'm really humbled that, you know, Gothic Serpent, which everyone knows is Black Hawk Down, it's been added to that list because it it was American troops at their best for each other. Our purpose in trying to stabilize a country and help other folks. It all of it was about the best of America, and so for that reason, man, I'm uh, I'm just honored to even have been a small part of it, which is all I really was. Yeah. Um, how do you know when your career is over? Oh my God, 
that was an easy one for me in the sense that they were trying to move me, you know, hey, we're going to make Colonel and go do this thing. And I realized I don't have the stamina for that anymore. After, after three way, I joined kind of late, mm-hmm. you know, in my fifties, it's like, I, I, what I wanted was peace in my life. And it's, you can't, there's no peace in an organization like JSOC. We're very good at what we do there. And I, I was honored to be part of it. But for me, man, I'm a, I became a Buddhist and, um, you know, don't come in my house cause I'm going to shoot you in the face. It, but, but at the same time, philosophically I've, I've moved into a different space. I spent a lot of time by myself skiing and hiking and uh, I like writing books and I like making movies and I like writing music and I like doing all these things and, and talking to people about how to make their life better. To me, that's more satisfying now than what I've, what I've done. I don't know if that answers your question or not. No, it does. I, I mean, um, let me ask it this way. Uh, how does Buddhism, how did Buddhism for you, um, help you with what you talked about before in reference to, yeah. you know, what, what goes on the other end of the rifle and um, help you find some sort of peace from all of this? Because again, 30 years later, the emotions are still fairly raw. So w- what does Buddhism do for you personally? It allowed me to accept what I had done and why I did it. Because I, I wouldn't change my career and the things that I've done. I, I would prefer not to have killed people, but it allowed me to, it's a means to process and accept what has happened because you cannot change what you have done or what has happened to you. You can be the victim of a, of a, of a crime or, or a you know, carjacking or whatever the case may be, or, or, or a traumatic car accident. You cannot change the things that have happened to you. Just the combat is, is a similar thing. However, if you learn to accept that, it's easier to let that go and it's easier to find peace and just be happy. And you know what? Everybody deserves to be happy. That's this. It's in our Declaration of Independence. Happiness. <laughs> it's it's a word that's in the Declaration. It's the only founding national government creation of a country document that has the word happiness. In it. I'm a big believer in happiness, man. And so, for me, that's what it, it allowed me to accept what I had done or the things that I had seen. At the same time, it allows me to to make sense of the world around me, and it allows me to move forward without being so uh, struggle with the things that, you know, that bothered me about those previous events. So it does both those things. It allows you to accept and it allows you to, to map a way ahead. And that was very helpful. That's very different than, say, Jeff Struker. For him, that came out in, in the Bible and Christianity. And uh, I think I would argue those are the same journey. Biggest lessons from Mogadishu, not only uh, from an army standpoint, but just for you personally. Yeah, you can never carry too much ammo. (laughs) Yeah, I got got one of those too. Like, don't leave your interpreter. Uh, Yeah, that was that was that was a bad one. Uh, Yeah, our interpreter was in the back of my Humvee, curled up in a fetal position. He didn't get a scratch on him, and I'm glad he didn't. But yeah, he wasn't very helpful. Uh, I I, I left the map and my interpreter back at base because I was pissed off, and you know, uh, it didn't go well. Uh, It it ended with me rolling over an IED because I didn't know where I was. But neither here nor there. Uh, Lessons learned, right? Anyway, uh, other than bring some ammo, bring more ammo. What what else you got? Well, you know, I, I, I think. Man, from lessons learned, you know, there's there's a lot of cliche, you know, be careful what you wish for. But at the same time, you should be selective about the organizations you commit yourself to. 
So what that means is for me profoundly, I feel very fortunate to have been part of some of the most capable people in the history of human warfare to do what they did. Mm-hmm. Doesn't You don't get luckier than that. Was I one of them? I don't know. I, I think I was, I was really good at my job back then, but uh, to be surrounded by people that ultimately you would give your life for and that you respect uh, it's, that is a very, very beneficial thing to take away from. What about uh, your post-military career where you seem to take more risks than you did in your military career? Well, base jumping, yeah, you do base jumping long enough, it'll kill you. So I don't really base jump too much anymore. Good. I speed I'm, fly. I'm glad. Yeah, it's it's a thing. I would deal with my wife. I don't do subterminal cliffs and I don't poach buildings in Las Vegas anymore. But the, um, you know, it, man, it's, it's part of still how you find peace and how you evolve. I think one of the things that comes on the heels of these kinds of experiences in the military, regardless of what service you're in and what your job was, you could be wrenching on planes, you could be uh, a bosun's mate on a ship, or you could be a green beret, it doesn't matter, is you owe it to yourself to continue to evolve. And uh, for me, I'm, I'm in a constant state of evolution. I'm in pursuit of, of things that I find intimidating. Listen, I write books for a living, I am very intimidated by that. I'm insecure about my writing in a lot of ways. And I do it for that reason because it forces me. I have all this great branding. People like, oh, world record base jump guy and and Black Hawk Down special ops guy or combat control or whatever. But you can either write a story or you can't. And uh, that's very intimidating for me because no one really cares about the branding. It's whether you can put a story on a page. And so for me, that's forced me to start over from scratch. And for guys or girls who come out of our community, it can be very scary to start from the bottom because you want validity for what you've done. And uh, I, I, I tend to continue to seek out things that, that force me to be better than I was. I hope. Maybe, I, I don't know. You never really know if you're going to be successful. Uh, you mentioned the power of awareness, um, the, the, the personal safety book. We talked at the top about uh, Alone at Dawn. And how- are any of these related to Mogadishu, any of these books, or they're they're totally different? Uh, well, I mean, you know, my previous book to that was Alone at Dawn, and, you know, it, that book, it continues to sell well. I'm, I'm like Black Hawk Down, I'm, I, um, I'm pleasantly surprised that people want to read about combat control and this Air Force hero, John Chapman, the Air Force's only yes. Medal of Honor since yep. the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. you know, that that's a that's a powerful story and that it still sells i think is makes me feel good about america a little bit at a time when a lot of people don't feel good about america the polarization of politics really pisses me off yeah well i don't care if you're republican or democrat i you have to find common ground because you're all americans and it really makes me angry so demonizing the other side just because they don't do things the way you do or they want to prioritize differently is not the American way. And we need to get that sorted out or this country will no longer lead the world. And we have an obligation to do that. Yeah. You may take some uh, um, solace or at least, uh, you know, joy in knowing that uh, Jason Chapman, for those who don't know, was an air force combat controller who was killed in a mountain Takagar in Afghanistan and was posthumously awarded the medal of honor for, for his efforts. Uh, the, the actual foundation and the birth of this program was based off of Takagar because I was shocked that the world didn't know that story. Like that was, that that was Takagar. The battle of Takagar was essentially a almost repeat of 
Black Hawk down in a mountain in Afghanistan. It was a 20 hour battle where guys were stuck there on the top of a mountaintop with nobody to come and help them. They tried several times and a lot of people got killed and there was a lot of heroic things that went on. And a lot of people just, I'm still surprised to this day. It's not a movie. I really am. You know, and it goes back to, but I think, I think you're to extend your point a little further. And I don't disagree. I think there are many, many other battles that are not afforded that recognition. Yep. Black Hawk Down and Alone at Dawn are two books that have that allow the public to look behind that curtain. But Clinton Remesho, another Medal of Honor recipient yep. in Red Platoon, yeah, it's we've, we've told that, the outpost story. We've told Cop Keating almost a dozen times on the show as well. And so, to me, again, that one was fortunate enough that he wrote that book. How many other stories out there you don't know about, I don't know about, the public will never know about, only a handful of men and women who were there know about? There are a lot of them. That's why I'm sometimes surprised at the at the staying power of what everybody calls Black Hawk Down. Because yeah. uh, there's a lot of other heroic things done by Americans. Dan, I, tell, I mean, listen, that, that, that's been the goal of the Hazard Ground since the day I started it was to tell every story that was never afforded the opportunity to have to, have to be to be a book or a movie. You know, yeah. I say it all the time. You know, American Sniper and Lone Survivor and Black Hawk Down. There are books that were made in movies. That's why America knows them. But not about, a lot of America likes to read books anymore. Um, maybe some audio books. But the point simply is, is, even at that, they don't, you know, people don't take the time to read. Uh, and I, I love military history, so I do. But, yes, there are uh, – my, my goal is to tell every story that was never afforded the opportunity from a first-person point of view and let them share their story with the world. Mark, I think you're doing a great job. So thank you. I mean, again, that's, and, and it's funny because, and I'll just peel the curtain back a little bit. There are so many people I run into who go, well, my story doesn't stack up to the other people that you've had. And I said, that's not, the point. I feel that way. I mean, and again, it's the same. Then that's not the point because somebody listening to this can relate to something you said, because that's the human experience, right? Yes, that's the yeah. human connection. And that's why this show is popular. And that's why people come back and listen more because on some level they connect with something that you say, because we all share a same or similar experience and empathy, right? Empathy is the, is the biggest connective tissue we have in this world. And, and empathy, that, empathy, empathy and love yeah. under, underutilized words in our communities. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, they, they are, they are also relics of a time gone by. Um, you know, when, when you're coming up on the 30 year anniversary, every time you hit an anniversary, um, does it is it easier is it harder i mean i know you guys have all never all of you have never been back together in the same place you've come close a couple of times right um yeah, but- 23 union uh, they held over at delta force i went to that one. right i won't be going to anymore i think it's run its course for me um i connect with people that matter to me i mean you mentioned john bellman and matt eversman who i consider a great friend and i i enjoy matt you know it's good to touch base with those people because they matter to you because you've all shared this defining and almost ultimate human experience, which is what combat is. It's the ultimate stakes. Um, but I think some things get easier and some things get harder. You know, I'm, I'm a really peaceful person now, but there are days I want to just burn the world down. It still happens. Rage comes out of wherever. Yeah. Who knows where it even comes from? You, you can't put a finger on that, but but so for me, I used to do a lot of different things on October 3rd. I'd sit down and write. Sometimes I'd get plowed and, you know, get drunk. And sometimes I'd link up with teammates I've been with. Time softens things. And I think for anyone who's listening to this that's dealing with PTSD or from any experience, 
you know, the great benefit of time is it passes and with it, sharp things become softer and rounder. And our experiences in Somalia are no different. And I, uh, that's the benefit of time coupled with thought it equals wisdom, you know, and studying, like you said, you know, you read, reading helps a lot. Those are the things that, that allow you to move forward and find peace in life. So for me, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen on the 30th. I just take them one year at a time. I, but if there's a, if there's a reunion, I probably, probably won't go. And again, I, you know, uh, I think you're all at this point allowed the time and space to, uh, to figure out what, what works for you and what's best for you. Um, you know, look, and I think there's, I think there's an importance. Time passes, people get older, events are replaced by new events. And that's central to me. I think, you know, I, I think that 30th anniversary of October 3rd is somebody else's anniversary for something else. And uh, it's just as important as anything that I certainly did in East Africa. Well, look, uh, I, I know there's more to the journey. I wish that we could we could spend another two hours going through all this. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, look, there, there's there, maybe there's there's reason for a, a part two with Dan Schilling here, because I, I think that there's a lot of interesting topics that we need to hit on with you uh, in reference to, you know, what we've what we've touched on a little bit of, of dealing with military trauma uh, and combat and everything else going forward. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of things that people can learn from your experience and your time through. So it's something we'll have to revisit, but you know, again, uh, it's amazing for you to share your story again. There's always something I learn from a different perspective. And it just always reminds me that the three dimensional, four dimensional battlefield, two people are standing right next to each other and have completely varying experiences of the same event. Uh, always. Makes it unique. always. Um, that's again, goes back to the human experience. They, they, the stimulus they receive a different way, but I mean, obviously, again, everybody knows where the book and the movie is, but uh, I want you to listen to enjoy Utah, enjoy retirement, enjoy um, with the peace that you found in your life. You, you've certainly earned it uh, and, and just incredible to get a chance to spend some time with you and get to know you a little bit. Yeah, Mark, th- that's very kind of you. I appreciate that. And uh, I just want to say thanks for having me on and, and for everybody listening. I, I wish everybody the best and I, and I hope they're I hope this had some value uh, as well as entertainment. But uh, listen, it's been an honor to be on the show. Thanks. I I know it absolutely did. Dan Schilling, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Cheers. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.